We love people, we love a lot of things, but so often, if we're not careful, our ego is mixed in with it, right? And it, so it becomes this self-interested love. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage. Maybe one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. If you've been to a wedding that was a Christian wedding in any way, they probably read this passage. You probably had it read if you're married here at your wedding, or maybe you were like anti-establishment. You're like, everyone reads it, so I'm going to read something totally different. You read some obscure Habakkuk passage or something. But most weddings, they read this passage, right? Love is patient and kind, and you go through, and then the greatest of these is love. And it's just beautiful. It's really lyrical and powerful what Paul is saying. But really what's happening here is Paul is saying to this church in Corinth, your love has been mixed up so much with ego that you need a really clear understanding and explanation of what love is because you don't get it. See, the context of this church is important. This church, as we have seen over the weeks, is a mess. There are all types of things happening in the life of this church, and it looks a lot like our city. They're in Corinth, and Corinth is very similar to Miami. It is full of all different types of people from all over the place, many different belief systems and cultures mixing together. It is known as the Mecca of sexuality. So you can imagine how that has affected the church, and we've seen that previously. The church has kind of fallen into loving the culture and loving God and mixing all of these things together. And Paul is calling out this ego-driven love that they have. But the problem with the church is that they have all the markings of religious trappings. They've, they've fallen into being very religious, and so they think they're okay. They think that their idea and their concept and understanding of love is fine, because in chapter 12, Paul talks about the giving of gifts. It's another famous chapter, and Paul says that God gives gifts to his people, to the church, and to each of us. Every single one of you, if you are a believer in Christ, you probably have come to find, or you at one day will come to find, that God has given you gifts to use in the context of the church and in the city. He's given them to everybody. And part of the beauty of being in the church is that you begin to understand what your gifts are and you use them. He uses the example of the body. He says the church is like a body and has many members and each person plays a different role. Some people are the head, the torso, the arms, the legs. And the whole point of the church is that the body is supposed to come together. Everyone use their gifts to do great things for God and to show forth the message of the gospel, the good news of what we're going to celebrate this week in Holy Week. And the church has all of these things happening. They have gifts and people are using gifts. And what we see is that some of the gifts are very specific and powerful. Some people in the church have the gift of tongues so that people can come to understand and to hear God's word that may otherwise not understand. They have the gift of prophecy. Some people in the church, some have wisdom and knowledge and some have great faith. And there's people in the churches we read here that are very generous. They're literally living, willing to give everything away. And what happened in this church is that they've mixed together all of these religious things. They're using their gifts. They're engaging in worship services. They're holding church. They're meeting together. But because their love is mixed with their ego, they're not seeing the fact that they're just performing religious duties. And real love is not attached to the way that they're using their gifts. Really, why they're using their gifts, what we see in this church, is they're using it for personal gain. They're using it to build up their self-esteem. See, there was a belief in this church that if you had certain gifts, 
you were of a higher spiritual status than other people in the church. And so it kind of went something like this. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? Well, maybe one day God will look on you with favor and give you that gift that I have, right? Or, oh, oh, you don't understand this? Maybe you're just not ready to understand, but one day you'll grow in your faith and you'll begin to understand like I understand because I'm on the next plane spiritually. I'm more mature than you, you know? Or, oh, oh, you're not willing to give away all that you have? Maybe you should deal with your selfishness, you know? Because those of us that are up here that look down on you, we're willing to do anything for God. See, they've taken gifts and they've taken calling and they've infused it with their own ego because they want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel superior to other people in the church and other people in the city. And they want to feel like, you know, I'm on a higher spiritual level than everybody else because I have these specific and unique gifts. And here's what Paul says. He says that any religious activity that is motivated or driven by self-interested love is worthless. Anything. That's what he says. Look at the very beginning of the text inside your worship program, or if you brought your Bible with you. He says, if I speak in tongues, he's going to call out these certain gifts that they thought were, you know, really special and put them on another playing field, a higher spiritual plane than everybody else. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, because that's how serious I am about my faith, I'm willing to give my body away, but I have not love, I gain nothing. See, Paul is calling out the fact that their ego, their narcissism, as we talked about in in the very beginning of our series, that is seeped into every fabric of their being, he's saying that, listen, God may have given you some specific and unique gifts, and some of them may be powerful. But if it is driven by self-interested love, if it is driven by your ego to feel superior or a higher spiritual state than other people, to look down on others, it is worth nothing. It is worth absolutely nothing. And that's exactly what they were doing. And he tells them, that is not how God has called the church to work. And you see this in the context of this church, right? This church is split into factions. There are people in the church that are doing whatever they want. They're engaging their passions in any way possible. There's a man in the church, as we talked about, that is sleeping with his father's wife. And the church is like, it's not a big deal. That's their decision. Yeah, it's destroying their relationship. But I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to call that out. Like, that's their own issue. People in the church are suing each other. I mean, this church is a mess. But they look on the outside like they're doing all the right religious things. They have a very faulty understanding of what love is. They don't understand because they've mixed their ego with love together. And Paul is saying that you have all these things happening, but it's worthless if you don't understand what love really is. And this is the assertion. It's a very bold claim. He says, any action, religious or otherwise, that is driven by ego is worthless. This is 
a bold statement for us as well because it flies straight in the face of the status quo for us in our culture. In front of your worship program, there's a, a quote by Richard Rohr that says, the human ego prefers anything, just about anything, to falling or changing or dying. We don't want to change. We don't want to die. We're about ourselves, right? The ego is the part of you that loves the status quo. Even when it's not working, it attaches to the past and the present and fears the future. We, every single one of us, myself included, our ego attaches itself to the status quo. We don't want to change. We don't want to give away. We don't want to, you know, fall and be broken. We don't want to open ourselves up to that. And so our, our understanding and view of love is all mixed together with that because we don't want to love correctly because it's dangerous and scary to us. And every culture has had ego. Every culture has promoted itself and we've we've been selfish from the beginning but different in each culture and ours is unique right we're living in a postmodern era but we don't even say that anymore that's how postmodern we are right we don't even call it postmodernism because we're labeling it we don't want to label anything but we've moved right from modernism to postmodernism and postmodernism is a critique of modernism there's a theorist that explains it like this it really makes a lot of sense he says that we have shifted from solid times to liquid times. It makes a lot of sense. Here's what he's saying. Modernism promoted things like logic and reason and rationale and evidence, universal truth and helping to kind of define things. And we have shifted from things that are solid to what? Things that are fragmented, Diverse. We uphold multiplicity and fragmentation and connections and experience. And we've talked about how things are, you know, unique and different for each person, that they're relative. So we were solid times, but we've moved to liquid times. But there's one thing that I think has transitioned from modernism, probably others as well, but one thing that jumped into my mind this past week that we still uphold, that was promoted during the modernistic error, and that is the idea of the Superman. No, not the guy in the red cape with the tights on. The, real, the, the previous Superman, which was promoted by Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous atheist philosopher, that during the period of modernism, he said this. He said, this idea of the Superman, or as he called it, the Uberman, but I felt weird saying that, but I said it anyway. The Superman is the ideal human. So he said, if we are evolved creatures, this is our next step. This is the aim of all people. Very few people achieve the status of Superman. But he says, this is to be who we are to become. And here are some of the things that he says the Superman looks like. Tell me if this resonates. The Superman makes their own values. They are selfishly strategic. They are selfishly strategic or strategically selfish. And they are willing to hurt people if it will promote and generate their own end. They are gentle with those that are weak. But they're gentle with those that are weak because they realize that they're strong. They promote uh, and delight in their own abilities. Humility is actually a bad word for the Superman. That is not something that you try to take up. You're to take up promotion of self. And salvation or deliverance is through culture. You are saved through culture. 
Essentially, the goal is to become a super version of yourself. That's the goal. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about our culture, our media, your work. Tell me if these things sound similar. If this is what's promoted, right? To be the best version of yourself. To make your own values. To be strategically selfish. To trample other people and hurt other people if it is necessary to accomplish your goal. To be gentle with those that are weak. To be about social justice. Why? Because you're strong. To delight in your abilities. To promote yourself. To market yourself. And then lastly, to believe that salvation and deliverance is through culture. And that makes a lot of sense right now. Because if salvation and deliverance is through culture, then if culture is not progressing the way that you want it, And if the people in power are not the people that you want in power, then what does it generate? A lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. Because salvation is through culture. And so if it's not progressing how you want it, that's fearful. You see, our culture says this, right? Be all that you can be. Do you. I don't even know what that means, but we say it, right? Do you. We are working and striving to make our own values and be selfishly strategic and be about social justice because we're strong and capable of doing that. We are are looking to to create and make culture how we want it because culture can save us and and can deliver us. We delight and promote ourselves in our own abilities and our own achievements. See, this is our status quo, right? And if you are honest with yourself like me, It's the same for me is that this drives us. Our ego drives us. And so when Paul makes a statement like this, like any action, religious or otherwise, that is motivated by your ego is worthless. That is a startling statement because it flies in the face of what we are told over and over and over again in our culture and through our media and our work and our social circles and probably even what we have begun to tell ourselves. And so Paul, recognizing that they have a faulty understanding of love, and we probably as well have a faulty understanding of love, he transitions to the very famous section where he wants them to understand what love really is. Here's what he says in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. It's beautiful. That section is beautiful and powerful, but it is cutting to the core And essentially what it reads, if you know and you've been with us through this entire series, you know that this is actually the opposite of how the Corinthians have been living. Paul is essentially saying that love is to act the complete opposite of how you've been acting. You have been acting with arrogance and you have been putting yourself on a pedestal over people. You have been impatient. You have been rude. You've been insistent on your own way. You have been rejoicing not with the truth, but with your own passions and making your own way. You have not been living what true love is, real love at all. And when you read this list, if you are honest, you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, I have a long way to go. (laughs) Right? I felt that. You think to yourself, sometimes I'm patient. But sometimes I just can't take it anymore. I'm impatient. 
you think to yourself that, you know, sometimes I'm kind, but sometimes when the AC has been broken for a week and you call the repair company for like the 25th time, your first instinct is not to be kind. I don't know why I use that example. Sometimes you're content, right? But sometimes you think to yourself, man, what would it be like if I had that? Should I be really working to get that? Sometimes you're quiet about what you've achieved. But sometimes you're like, man, I don't get any affirmation and no one's promoting me, so I need to promote myself. Sometimes you're humble and sometimes you do truly feel superior to other people. Sometimes you're forgiving and sometimes you know it you're like i'm done being forgiving there's a point to where forgiveness ends and i cannot continue to take jabs and i have to kind of let them know what's up or break off and distance the relationship sometimes you're willing to follow and listen and sometimes you're like that's dumb and i'm going to do my own thing because this is the right way sometimes you are calm and stable and hopeful and sometimes you are irritable And full of resentment and bitterness and you're stressed. Sometimes you are repentant when you have been engaging and doing things that you know are wrong. And sometimes you're like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to have fun. And I don't care if it's wrong. I'm going to do my own thing. Sometimes you rejoice with the truth and you stand firm in what you believe. And sometimes you're like, you know what? I'm going to fall into delusions. I know they may be delusions, but it's way easier to be comfortable and to be accepted and to fit in than it is to stand out. See, there is a war happening inside of us between real love and ego-driven love. And Jordan Sparks put it really well. She said, why does love always have to feel like a battlefield? My goodness. (sighs) Not ever doing that again. Apparently no one here listens to music, or maybe not like 10 years ago. But Jordan Sparks famously said, why does love always feel like a battlefield? Now we're singing, I love it. But it feels like that, right? It feels like there's this battle between real love and ego-driven love. And you read this, and you're like, love is patient and kind and not insistent on its own way and not rude. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you just take one of those, and I'm not good at one of them. Or it's off and on, off and on, off and on. Urban Dictionary, you know, they tell us what real love is. If you didn't know, you can look it up on Urban Dictionary. Um, Here's what they said. Real love is when all you can think about is that one person. Really deep, right? (laughs) Real love is when all you can think about is that one person. Here's what they're saying, right? Love is an idea that creates a feeling. When all you can think about is that one person. See, the problem is, one, that's wrong. Two, that's why we have this understanding and this go-to instinct that love is romantic love. When you hear the word love, oftentimes the first thing you think of is romance, right? When all you can think about is that one person. Because you feel attraction or compatibility. And so you think to yourself, could this be love? We use this term, right? Am I in love or I'm in love with you? Like, what does that mean? Think about that. Like love as if love is like a sphere that we like step into. And I'm like, I'm in it. 
I don't know what I'm in, but I'm in it, and I'm feeling it. The idea, it's here, I'm in the sphere, I'm in love right now. Now I'm out of love, but now I'm back in love. Because that's what we believe, is what we promote, right? Love is an idea that creates a feeling. And so sometimes we're in it, sometimes we're out of it. But now listen, I want to tell you this. I don't want you to change your entire communication strategy. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, now what do I say? You know, how do I tell someone that I love them? I can't say in love because now that seems weird to me. No, you can use that, right? We use it as a terminology to, exp- to express appreciation and gratitude and, and, a, and a, a love, a feeling of positivity and joy for that person. So it's okay to say you're in love. I don't need you to change. You don't have to change how you communicate. But love is not an idea and it's not a feeling. It's not an idea that creates a feeling and it's not the feeling itself And love is not even the motivating factor behind better behavior. Sometimes we think that, right? You think to yourself, man, why am I so impatient? And why have I been rude? And you think, you know, maybe it's because I'm not loving that person. Again, right? So we think to ourselves like, okay, I need to love them, and then I'll be patient, and then I'll be kind, Again, we think that it's this idea, like this kind of plane that we get to, and once we're loving the person, then we'll be patient and we'll be kind and we'll be humble. But it's not. Here's what Paul says. He says, love is behavior. Love is action. If love is not accompanied with action, it is not love. Did you pick up what Paul said? He said, love is patience and kindness. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love does not insist on its own way. Notice he did not say love creates patience or love motivates you to be patient. He said love is patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. He's saying that love is action. It is actually the behavior to be patient is to love. To be kind is to love. To be humble is to love. But there is a belief behind the action. That's why he says something that is all-encompassing, and it's almost incomprehensible, right? He says in verse 7, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. If you look at that, he says, love bears all things, meaning love is willing to carry and to tolerate and to deal with anything. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Not not that love is naive and it just believes the best about everyone in every situation without any discernment or wisdom. But no, no, no. Love does not lose faith. Love does not lose hope. And love endures all things. It will go through any trial. It will persevere through any difficulty because love never ends. It is lasting. So the question is, how in the world does love bear all things and endure all things? Words that that conjure up the idea of action, right? It's doing something to bear all things and to endure all things. Well, Paul attaches it together. It's very interesting. He puts those on the end, right? Love endures all things and love bears all things and right in the middle he lets you know how that's possible because love believes all things and it hopes all things see love is action that is buoyed by belief and hope it's what paul is saying in this passage 
Love is action. It is the behavior that is buoyed. It is supported by belief and by hope. Not driven by ego or self-interested love, but buoyed by faith and hope. That's why in verse 13 he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Have you ever asked yourself, why is the greatest of these love? Faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. But the greatest of these is love. It's because love is in its own category. Faith and hope are actually a part of love. They buoy and support love. They are attached to it because love is superior. It is supreme. And that's why he tells you in in the verses before in 8 and 9 and 11 that, that love is preeminent over all things. He says, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's saying that, listen, the gifts that you have will pass away. They will, they will go away. But love remains. It's equivalent to how children grow up to become adults. And you no longer do the same things that children do. You know that if you put your hand on the stove, it will burn your hand. And so when you become an adult, you realize to put that away. Don't do that anymore. Stop eating crayons. Bad idea. In the same way, he's saying your understanding of love, you've taken love and you've used it as, a, as the backbone behind, oh, I love you and I'm going to use my gifts to really encourage myself and build my self-esteem and put myself on a higher level than other people. That's not love. Love is behavior that is buoyed by faith and hope and it never ends. And in verse 12 is one of my favorite verses in this entire passage, he says. He's wrapping it up. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, in Corinth, they would have really understood this because they were famous for making these beautiful bronze mirrors, the greatest mirrors in all the known world. So he's saying that your understanding of love is like looking in a mirror that's dimly lit. You see it, it's clear, but it's indirect. It's not complete. But one day, you're going to see love face to face. And then it will be complete. And there's no comparison between seeing it face to face and seeing what you see now, which is like seeing it in a mirror. It's like looking on your TV. Maybe you even have a 4K TV. And you're looking at a picture of your friends. And you can see every little pixel and it's beautiful. Maybe you even have the goggles and it's 3D. And you're like, wow, it's amazing. But it's no comparison to seeing your friends in person. He's saying that love, that what we see and understand of love now is partial. It's not, it's indirect but one day we will see it directly. It's very interesting, the language, right? He actually is taking love and he's attaching personhood to it. You notice that? He's saying that right now you see love like you're looking in a mirror, right? What do you see in reflection of a mirror? A person. But one day you're going to see love face to face. You see what he's saying? He's saying that God is love. That Jesus Christ is love. Right now, you see in a mirror, indirectly. But one day, you will see him face 
to face. See, Paul's point is that love is the result of faith and hope in God. When you look in the mirror and you believe and you hope in Jesus Christ and the God of heaven, you are seeing love dimly lit, indirectly. And that is enough for you to to live a life of love now. It is the thing that buoys and supports love as action in your life. But one day, what you believe, what you have faith and hope in that drives you is that you're going to see love face to face. You're going to see Christ face to face. We call ourselves Christ followers, but what that really means, what Paul is saying, is that you are following after love. You are living a life of love. If you're trying to live like Jesus, then you're trying to live a life of love. The Apostle John says very abruptly in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you know God, if you believe in faith and hope in God, then you will love God modeled love because you know God, because you've seen God's behavior and his actions in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Romans 5 puts it beautifully. He shows you very clearly what real love is. For while we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. You might die for someone that is a good friend or family member, and someone may even die for someone else that is good. But who dies for someone that's their enemy? And then Paul says, but God shows his love for us. See, he showed his love. It was active. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no ego in that. It's not self-interested. It is sacrificial and it is selfless. Christ modeled for us what real love is. It is concerned for the benefit of the other. It is active. It is removing and drowning out the voice of our own ego in our life. And trying to live sacrificially and selflessly. And so the question that I asked myself this whole week as I was working through this passage is, how do I fight this love war, right? This war between real God-modeled love and my ego-driven love that so often dominates the way that I actually behave. And I want you to hear this. It is certainly not through religion. It's what Paul's getting at in this passage. They had all the markings of religious trappings. It is not by work harder, try better, perform more. If you do some better things for God, then he'll reward you and you'll start to love more. It's not. He's telling you and he's reminding you that the way that you fight this battle between real love and ego-driven love is by engaging faith and hope. The very thing that buoys and supports love as action and behavior. You remind yourself of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you. You remember who God is and that while you were still a sinner, while you were enemy, while you wanted nothing to do with God and you stiff-armed him at every opportunity, Christ died for you. And Christ loves you. And he will never stop loving you no matter what you do. I want to close uh, by rereading a section of this passage. And, you know, it's Palm Sunday. And it's a beautiful moment for us to consider what Christ has done for us as we're preparing for Holy Week This is the week of love. It's a week of joy and celebration because Christ died for the ungodly, for you and for me. 
And Jesus entered on Palm Sunday, Jerusalem, knowing it's going to be the last week of his life, knowing that he is going to be betrayed, he's going to be ridiculed, he's going to be tortured, and he's going to be killed. And yet, why did he enter? Why did he even go in? Because he loved us. He continues to love us. So I want to read this passage for you. And I want you to personalize it. I want you to think about the fact that Jesus has directed his love towards you. That this is toward you. Regardless of what you've done or what you've thought or where you've been, this is directed towards you. So if you want to just listen, if you want to close your eyes, but I want you to personalize this and hear this. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not boast or envy. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. So now faith, hope, and Jesus abide, these three. But the greatest of these is Jesus. Will you pray with me?